This week, as I was thinking about angels, I was having a hard time thinking about uh, just where angels might play, what place they might play in your own life. You know, they're big in the culture. If you go on Amazon or Google and you put in angels, you won't, you won't imagine, you can't imagine the things that you will read about, particularly the books. If you go under Amazon and, and put in angels, they're just, just myriads and myriads on angels, books on angels, right? There's just a fascination in our uh, post-Christian, secularized world. It's not that we become less religious, right? Uh, no, we're becoming more religious, I think, more spiritual, but it's a spirituality that's being defined by paganism, right? It's, it's, it's very much in tune with the supernatural, but just not the supernatural as it's revealed in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Godhead. But most pictures that you see often for angels are depicted as uh, gentle, soft, little chubby creatures uh, with harps. And on Valentine's Day, of course, they have the, you know, the harp and so forth. But that's not the picture you get from the Bible, uh, in the Bible, angels are, uh, are mighty warriors, and, and where they appear, and when they do appear, uh, people are tempted to worship them, right? That's what happened to, to John in John 19, rather, Revelations 19.10, where John fell down to worship the angel that appeared before him, and the angel said to him, you must not do this, I am a fellow servant with you. But we wonder, and we stop and we think, well, we know there's a fascination in our culture, but what was the fascination there in the first century when the book of Hebrews was being written? What was the fascination with angels? Uh, Some, perhaps, were giving angels undue credit, even attributing salvation to angels, right? We're just not exactly sure, though. When we step back, we we try to put it all together. It's kind of reconstructed, right? We take the pieces that we do have regarding their thoughts on angels, and we try to put together the, the puzzle without the box top, so to speak. And you're thinking, well, I think that's right. This is what was going on, but we don't know exactly. But one of the things I think that often gets overlooked in many ways is the fact that angels... Now listen, it's very important that we hear this because I think we, we uh, undervalue angels, particularly in the Reformed camp. Let me, let me share this with you. One of the things that often gets overlooked is the fact that angels did play a significant role in the giving of the law at Sinai. When the law came to the people of God in uh, Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, we're told in Galatians 3.19 that the law at Sinai was put in place through the mediation of angels, right? Deuteronomy 33.2, Moses said that when Yahweh came from Sinai, he was accompanied with Ten thousands of the holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. Stephen in Acts 7.53 said the Old Testament was delivered by angels or, or through angels. In Hebrews 2.2 we read, we're going to read eventually, that the message of the Old Covenant was declared by angels. Have you thought much about that? I haven't, to be uh, to perfectly honest. Well, what role did they have? Well, evidently, they had a significant role. These believers here in the book of Hebrews understood that role. Now, maybe they were overvaluing their role. Maybe we're undervaluing as Reformed folk. Right now, I think we do. Typically, we're very cerebral people, right? From the neck up, we run. That's how Presbyterians run. But the world is charged with spiritual 
reality, right? The world is charged with the supernatural, only to have eyes to see it. And that's what's going on here with these angels. And I think perhaps the obsession there in the first century. The role of angels in the Old Testament was much larger than we give it credit for. You know, many, uh, many led to believe, perhaps, that the Old Covenant came through angels, but the New Covenant didn't. So maybe they were undervaluing uh, or undervaluing the significance of the New Covenant, that Jesus maybe was not superior to angels. Maybe he was less than the angels because he brings a covenant that didn't come through the mediation of angels. We just don't know. But in verses 4 to 14, the writer wants to establish for us, as he did for the church there, the superiority of Jesus to angels. Right? He wants us to understand the, the, the glory and the superiority of the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man, fully God, fully man, as being superior to the angels. So he gives us four contrasts, right? How Jesus is better than the angels, and he does this by way of Old Testament references. He does this pedagogically thing of trying to contrast. It's this, but not that, right? He's doing this contrast here, and he's going to do it four times. Before we look at the four contrasts, though, I want to look at the author's thesis there in verse 4, right? Again, the preacher, the author, has just told us that after Jesus made purification for sins, we're told that he sat down at the right hand of the majesty of God, and now in verse 4, we're told that Jesus did this. Notice what happens here in verse 4. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So what is this name? What is this name that Jesus Christ inherited? And when did he inherit it? Right? That's the question the text begging the answer to, right? What is the name he inherited, and when did it happen? Well, let me share with you what I believe the text is to be teaching. I believe the name that Jesus inherited is the name Son, S-O-N, capital S-O-N. And the time in view when this happened is at the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and His exaltation and His ascension to the right hand of God. Beloved, this is exactly the same point that the Apostle Paul makes in chapter 1, verse 4, where he does his little salutation and his greetings there to the church at Rome. There Paul says that Jesus descended from David according to the flesh, was declared, now listen, declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Beloved, in his mediatorial office, Christ was appointed, Christ was declared Son of God by virtue of his resurrection from the dead. But that begs the question, right? How is this possible? How is it possible that the eternally preexistent Son, whom we were told in verse 2 is the creator of all things, the second person of the Trinity, be appointed, be declared Son of God? Beloved, Paul here is speaking redemptive historically about an event in history where Christ, as mediator and Davidic king, after the resurrection, translated from a state of humiliation to a state of exaltation. He's no longer in this ministerial state of humiliation in the incarnation before the resurrection, but now after the resurrection, he is 
exalted as son, as Davidic king, who now reigns, fulfilling all those Davidic promises that we have in the Psalter, that he's the son of God, son of man. The Apostle Paul in Romans 1.4 and the author of Hebrews here in verse 4 is talking about a transition of the Son, again, from a state of humiliation and weakness to a state of exaltation, becoming the Son of God in power, having completed all that the Father gave him to do. You see, the Son as mediator is now invested with all authority. That's why at his resurrection there in Matthew 28, right, he comes to his disciples there in Galilee and he tells them, all authority and on heaven and on earth have been given unto me. You see, now he's in his exalted state as son of God, begotten of the Father, right? Now he's the king. He's achieved all that the Davidic king was to achieve. He's achieved all that Israel was typifying and foreshadowing. He's achieved all that Adam held out before Adam was to achieve, but failed to achieve. He's the better Adam. He's the true Israel. He's the true king who completes. He is the beloved son, you see, who fulfills the Father's desire and the Father's will. The whole Old Testament could be, you could just wrap it up from Genesis to Malachi Begging the question, where is a faithful son? Can I get a faithful son? Can I get a son who will delight in me, who will love me and keep my law? It begs the question. It's pregnant, right? It's like in the third trimester. Ankle swollen, you know, food cravings. The whole thing, it comes with being pregnant. I've never been pregnant. And by the way, kids, I cannot get pregnant. Yes, men do not get pregnant. But the Old Testament is pregnant with expectation, begging the question, where is the faithful Adam? Where is the faithful David? Where is the faithful Israel? And then, then we get to Matthew chapter 1. The genealogy, the genesis of son of David, son of Abraham, son of God, Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 3, you have the baptism, right? Behold, my beloved son, the one in whom I'm well pleased. It's all about a faithful son. The whole Bible is longing for a faithful son, a faithful Christian, Jesus Christ. Now, raised from the dead, is declared son of God in power. See, it's redemptive historical We're not denying the significance of the eternality, the second person of the Godhead. What we're doing is saying it's it's more than that. It's not less than that. Jesus actually accomplished something redemptive historically. He's now exalted, and he's given the name Son, Faithful Son. You see the beauty of that? Of God's grand story, this meta-narrative? That God's fulfilling His Word, bringing His Son into glorious power as the better Adam, the truer Adam, fulfilling all righteousness. And beloved, there is no place where any angel was ever called Son. No place. No angel was ever exalted as the God-man to this position of supremacy and power. At the resurrection, the Father publicly acknowledged and declared Christ as the Son of God in power. Right? 
Even at the transfiguration there in Matthew 17, right? Peter and Elijah. And they're all saying, well, maybe we'll make a tabernacle. Let's just, they're all great. But then Moses and Elijah fade out and there's only Jesus. And the voice comes from heaven and says, this, this, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. You see, that's the whole story of the Bible. A beloved son. And that beloved son is Jesus Christ. The one who fulfills all the types, all the shadows. So at the end of the day, what's the Bible all about? Jesus. Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And all that he's accomplished for us. He's son of God in power. Now with that background and understanding Jesus as the exalted son, no longer in a state of humiliation, but now exaltation because he's completed all that the Father gave him, the writer gives us seven Old Testament quotations, six of which are from the Psalter, and one is from Samuel. Let's look at this. Let's look at this under these four contrasts. First, angels are but messengers... Jesus is the eternal Davidic Son. Let me say it again. Angels are but messengers. Jesus is the eternal Davidic Son. Here, in verse 5, the psalmist quotes Psalm 2, verse 7. Notice what he says there in verse 5, the first part of verse 5a. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my Son, today I have begotten you? Now we know he's speaking rhetorically. He never spoke to any angel that way. No angel was ever spoken in that way. But here he speaks about his son. Today I have begotten you. Now let me just speak a word about this word begotten. The word begotten here has nothing to do with biological reproduction. Nor does it refer to Jesus' conception in the womb of Mary. Rather, it's simply a metaphorical way of describing the appointment of the king. The King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus as Davidic king and his exaltation to the throne. You see, saints, when applied to the Davidic king Jesus Christ, it points to his glorious vindication as son, that his work is finished. And that occurred when he was raised from the dead. Listen to Peter as he quotes this psalm, Psalm 2, in his own sermon there in Acts 13, 32 to 33. Peter says, we bring you good news that God promised the fathers that he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus as it is written, you are my son, today I have begotten you. You see the redemptive historical fulfillment, right? As the Old Testament sets it up and it's fulfilled perfectly in a person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Church, to which of the angels, again, did God ever say this? He didn't. No single angel is ever called Son of God. We're told in verse 14 that angels are ministering spirits, right? They're servants of God, but who do they serve? They serve the church, those who are the inheritors of salvation. Some of us, perhaps in our lifetime, have been ministered to by angels and didn't know it, unawares. The ministering spirits of God were ministering to us those who are the inheritors of salvation. Notice he goes on, though, to this second quotation from 2 Samuel 7, 14, in verse 5b. Notice what he says, Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now, where was this 
found. This was found in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14. In 2 Samuel 7, God through Nathan the prophet promised David that he will have a son and successor who will stand in a unique relationship to Yahweh the covenant Lord. The Davidic son will be called son of God. Now we know originally this promise was initially fulfilled right in Solomon. Right? But the promise is too big for Solomon. Solomon cannot exhaust this promise. So it has this kind of this dualistic thing. Right? It has the, in, the immediate fulfillment in Solomon. And yet Solomon is not big enough to fill this promise. There must be another Davidic son who's going to come. And we know this one who was to come has come in the person, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He is the Davidic heir, the Davidic son of God. You see, this promise was fulfilled in him. Secondly, angels, this second contrast, angels are worshiping creatures. Jesus is the worshipped son. Let me say it again. Angels are worshiping creatures, right? They worship the triune God. Jesus is the worshipped son. He's the one receiving the angelic worship, right? In verses 6 to 7. In verse 6, the preacher quotes from Psalm 97. 7, it's believed. And again, he will bring the firstborn into the world. He says, let all God's angels worship him. Now, most commentators believe that the author here is referring to the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you remember in Luke 2 when the uh, angels and the angelic host appeared to the shepherds in the field? Right? That great glorious message of the first Christmas. Right? Luke 2. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts. Right? These heavenly ministers. Praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom He's well pleased. Beloved, the preacher wants his readers and us to see that the Son's place is on the throne. And the angel's place, like ours, is before the throne worshiping. Angels are not to be worshipped. Rather, they're worshipers. And whom do they worship? They worship the Son, the Davidic King, who's now exalted, no longer in a state of humiliation, but now in a state of glorification, a state of exaltation. He's been lifted up. He's been given the name above every name. That at that name, every name, that name, Jesus Christ, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that He is Lord to the glory of the Father. But notice, and some of you are asking this, right? Some of the kids are going, well, why does it call Him firstborn? Right? Verse 6, the Son is referred to as firstborn. This is not a reference to a temporal birth order, but rather refers to Christ's position. Again, it's, it's speaking about his status as heir. He's, he's now king in glory. He's appointed heir over all things. You see, in the Old Testament, the oldest son was a position of honor. It was to him, it was entitled a double portion of his father's inheritance. It was a position and rank that the first had. And all God is saying is here that Jesus now has this rank. He has this rank above every creature, over all angels. So likewise, Paul will use the title in first, rather Colossians 
right? Referring to Christ as the firstborn from the dead. He's first in rank in the new creation, not only in the old one, but in the new one. And he goes on in verse 7, and he quotes Psalm 104, verse 4. Speaking of the angels, God says, He makes His angels winds and His ministers flames of fires. You see, angels may be swift, and they might be like lightning, but they're not the sun. There's only one sun, and that sun is the Lord Jesus Christ, now the begotten of the Father, right, enthroned on high. Thirdly, angels are created servants. Jesus is their creating Lord. Let me give it to you one more time. Angels are created servants. Jesus is the creating Lord, verses 8 to 12. This is the fifth reference, right, here in verse 8. This reference is from Psalm 45, 6 through 7. This is a wedding psalm, right? The original context of Psalm 45 was a marriage song that celebrated the marriage of the Davidic king to his bride, right? But as with all the Psalms, it speaks and foreshadows not just of the wedding of any king, but the king of kings, Israel's ultimate king, the Messiah. In verse 8, this writer to the Hebrews says this about the Son, right? Angels are like winds of fire, like lightning, but of the Son. He, that is God the Father, says, notice what God the Father says about his Son. Your throne, what? O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You see, beloved, while angels are glorious and full of majesty, we must always remember that their glory and their splendor is borrowed glory and borrowed splendor. And that glory and that splendor belong to the Son of God and Him alone. They're like the moon, right? The moon has no glory in itself. It merely reflects the glory of the sun. That's all angels are. They reflect the glory of the triune God, right? The beauty of his goodness, right? But the father says about the son in verse 9, Son, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Again, the author is reminding us the Son is on the throne and the angels are before the throne worshiping the Son. And in verses 10 to 12, the preacher quotes Psalm 102, 25 through 27. In the original context here, the psalmist is extolling the covenant Lord Yahweh as creator. That Yahweh, you're the creator and glorious and majestic is your name. But now notice what happens in verses 10 to 12. The author, right, the preacher, a Jewish Christian, is unashamedly applying it to Jesus of Nazareth. Don't undervalue that paradigm shift. Here is a first century Jew calling a fellow Jew, Jesus of Nazareth, God. Notice what he says. You, Yahweh... The sun laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you, the sun, are the same. Your years will have no end. Are you starting to see the implications 
right? As he's making this lofty, powerful case that the son is not an angel. He's superior to the angels. So why would you return to a covenant that was mediated through angels? When the son has come and brought a covenant not mediated by angels, one who's superior to the angels, the one who is God himself, why would you return to the coloring book when you have the reality right here in Jesus Christ? Why paint with numbers when you've got a Rembrandt? Right? Why would you go back to the shadows and to the types of the old covenant? Now it has greater outward glory, right? With all the sacrifices and all the bells and all the ornamentation, right? Yes, it's a temptation. I understand that, he's saying. But Jesus is superior. Jesus is better. He's greater to none of the angels that he ever say, you are my son, today I've begotten you. You see, he's making the case. And next week we're going to see he's going to draw out the implications of his case. Therefore, we must pay careful attention to what we heard. Because if the covenant mediated through angels was serious and would result in judgment if you broke it, how much more the covenant mediated not by angels, but by the Son of God, you see. He's concerned about them persevering and continuing in our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, and he's not just any prophet, priest, and king, but he's God of God, begotten, not made. He's king over every square inch of our lives. And I thought to myself, I was telling my wife this week, honey, I'm struggling with application. But I thought to myself, what part of our lives is not implicated by this truth? What part of your lives does not fall under the purview of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? How about you kids, the way you do homework? You do it before the face of God, right? The way we conduct our marriages, the way husbands love their wives and wives respect and submit to their husbands, right? The way we do church, the way we spend our money, the way we spend our leisure, the way we educate our children, All of it, we're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Jesus. Whatever it is we do. You're an engineer, you're doing engineering to the glory of Jesus. You're an artist, you're painting to the glory of Jesus. You're a lawyer, you, what are they, practice law to the glory of God, right? Whatever it is you do. I don't know what, lawyers, what uh, You preach to the glory of God. Everything we do is to the glory of God. There is no nook nor cranny that Jesus does not declare, it is mine in your life. There's no closets in your life. He's not just your Lord and Savior on Sunday morning. We don't sequester him to Sunday morning from 1045 to 1215. Maybe a little earlier today. right? He's not a domesticated deity. He's King of kings and Lord of lords. Everything we do, the way we brush our teeth, we do everything to the glory of God. The way we comb our hair or not comb our hair. We do it all to the glory of God. Beloved, what we look at, the the Netflix episodes that I watch, to the glory of God. Every single facet. There are no rogue molecules where Jesus is not Lord. He rules over all. Now, he rules the civil sphere differently than he rules ecclesiastical sphere, but he rules them both. 
Right? Even if you're a staunch two-kingdom guy, there's only one king. And that king is the Lord Jesus Christ. The implications for his lordship and his sovereignty as begotten of the Father, as son who rules, as heir, as creator, as the exact imprint of his nature, the radiance of his glory, is ramifications for everything we do. We're not our own. We belong to Jesus. Fourthly, angels are our servants, but Jesus is our reigning king. Angels are our servants. You're saying, well, you mean they serve me? Yeah, that's what the writer tells us. Angels are ministering servants of those who are to inherit salvation. Right? Verses 13 to 14. Here's the seventh reference, right? He brings his argument to a close with a final contrast. No angel ever heard God say to them, verse 13, quoting Psalm 110.1, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Again, the original context for Psalm 110 referred to the enthronement of Israel's king and the promised victory over the nations, over God's enemies. No, New Te- no Old Testament king ever came close to seeing this promise fulfilled. And yet now the preacher here is saying that in Christ, the eternal Son, it is fulfilled. Christ now sits enthroned as his kingdom advances and his enemies are remade a footstool. As men and women, boys and girls, come to kiss the Son, acknowledging his lordship over every area of our lives. As the kingdom advances, God is taking his enemies and he's making his enemies sons, <laughs> beloved sons in his only begotten son, our Lord Jesus Christ. This is why the Revelations eleven fifteen can say the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. And in verse 14, he continues, he concludes with this contrast in reference to angels. Are they not ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? You see, you think to ourselves, there are servants and they're sent. And I ask you, who sends them? According to the word of God, Jesus Christ, the begotten of the Father, the Davidic Son, He sends the angels. He sends the angels to minister to us who are the inheritors of salvation. Right? Let me give you a few examples in closing. 2 Kings 6, 15-17. Remember there? Elisha's servant, Gehazi. He wakes up one morning and he looks on the hillside there and he sees the Syrian army and he sees all their chariots and he begins to tremble. Elijah says, don't fear. Don't fear. He is with us is greater than or more than those who are with them, right? And then he prayed that the servant's eyes would be open and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire, right? Or Daniel 6, who was it that shut the mouths of the lions? Was it not the angels? In Luke 16, the poor man Lazarus was escorted into heaven by angels, Acts 12, the angel was sent and delivered Peter from prison. Matthew 4, angels ministered to the Lord after he came out of the the 40 days of temptation. He was ministered to by angels. 
Luke twenty two forty three, an angel strengthened the Lord Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. You see, angels are given to the church to strengthen her, given to us as those who are the inheritors of salvation. In Hebrews thirteen two says this: Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. You see, the world is charged with the supernatural. There are angels all around us, according to the Word of God. You see, beloved, the living God has promised to bring us all the way home. And who knows how many angels He will use in our lives along the way. As I conclude, I I just want to reiterate the fact that, you know, here are believers who are struggling. We're debating whether it was worth it. Was Jesus worth it? You know, I could go back to the old covenant, to the status quo. The status quo is always easy, right? You just get to be, you don't challenge the authority, right? You just play the game. But the author's putting out before them the greater prize, which is Jesus himself, the one who's superior to all that came before him. So why would you go back? Why would you return, right? And for us... Again, we don't have the danger of going back to Judaism, right? I don't think anybody here is going to go back and go, well, I hope Pastor Bullock will sacrifice a goat next week. Now, I know you're not saying that, but your problem is the same one I have, is that if you're not intentional in the Christian life, you'll drift. You have to wake up endeavoring every moment of every day, right? I have a good friend who always uses that word endeavor. I love him for that because he's always reminding me to endeavor, right? We have to endeavor to put off and to put on Jesus. And we must always put Jesus before our eyes, right? We must always see the glory and the superiority of Jesus, right? So quick, we want to give the prescription, well, if this person would just do X, Y, and Z, they would be a better place. Well, that might be true. But X, Y, and Z without Jesus is futility because X, Y, and Z have no power over the flesh. The only thing that has power over the flesh is the beauty and the glory of Jesus in your life. Right? That he's the creator. He's the heir. He's superior to angels. He's the exact imprint of his nature. Right? He's the only begotten of the Father. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. And he's crowned Lord of all, you see. And as we put that before our eyes and, and we keep our eyes fixed on that, we surround ourselves with people who are always telling us to do this. Right? We're all like saying, Bill, look here. Jim, look there. Look up. The heavens, from whence comes your help? Your help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. You see, as we do this, we're going to get home. But we're not going to get home divorced of that. Because God saves us, but he doesn't save us in a vacuum. He saves us by working to will within us what is good and pleasing in our sight, right? We talk about being a Calvinist. Let's not be a theoretical Calvinist. Let's be a biblical Calvinist. That God uses means to accomplish his end. And his end is you persevering, you pressing on in Jesus Christ by faith in him who loved you and gave himself for you. Let's pray and ask this blessing. Our Father, we thank you for your holy word. We would pray that we would continue. We thank you, Father, that you began the good work in us, is faithful to complete it, but you complete it using means, and means of exhortation, sermons, bread, wine, uh, personal admonishment and rebuke uh, one to another, Lord, as we press on toward heaven. Lord, the world is is dark and we live in a very uh, troublesome age, uh, an age full of tumult and wars and rumors of wars when 
the darkness of, of the kingdom of darkness uh, seems to be all around us, Lord. When men choose and love what is evil uh, and, and suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So, Lord, we pray and we would ask that you would encourage us to stay, to press on in him again who loved us and gave himself for us, even our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray in his holy name. Amen.